This episode is brought to you by ELEAP, the Emerging Leaders in Environmental and Energy Policy Network. Founded in 2011, the ELEAP Network aims to stimulate transatlantic conversation and debate about pressing issues related to energy and the environment. The network's more than 100 members from over 20 countries engage in online debates on topics of the day and meet regularly for experiential study tours and other face-to-face activities. The ELEAP Network is a joint initiative of Ecologic Institute, Ecologic Institute U.S., and the Atlantic Council, and made possible by funding from the European Commission and the Allianz Foundation for North America. To find out more about the ELEAP Network, visit us at www.eleap.eu. Welcome to another episode of the ELEAP Network Podcast. My name is Julia Elkin, and I am your host for today's episode. Today, we'll be hearing about a recent ELEAP study tour that focused on climate adaptation in California. We'll meet and hear from two current ELEAP fellows, Andrea Ilish and Salem Afewerki, as they share what they experienced and learned on their tour of climate adaptation in California. I think you'll enjoy the conversation, and here's the episode. Welcome, Andrea and Salem, and thanks for joining the conversation today. To give you a little context, I'm an ELEAP fellow from this year's class, and I work as a project manager in the state of California for the California State Coastal Conservancy, which is a non-regulatory public agency. We fund public access, habitat restoration, open space preservation, and urban greening efforts along the state's iconic coastline. So my world coming into ELEAP is all about on-the-ground projects that very much intersect climate adaptation issues. This means for me, it was a really great pleasure to welcome my ELEAP classmates this spring as they traveled to California to continue the transatlantic dialogue we started this past October when we were on our study tour of climate adaptation in the European Union. Since we've got both a California-based fellow on the line and a European Union-based fellow, I'm looking forward to a pretty compelling transatlantic dialogue But before we dive into the content of the study tour and your experiences, I'd like you each to introduce yourselves and share how your background and work relate to climate adaptation. Andrea, let's start with you. Hi, everyone, and many thanks, Julia. So my name is Andre Lish, uh, and as Julia just said, I'm a current ELEAP fellow. Uh, For those who have listened to our previous ELEAP podcast, which we published around a month ago about the EU tour, um, I might sound familiar, uh, as I was really fortunate enough to take part in both trips. And I'm, again, really excited to share my experiences again with you. So with regards to my background, um, I am an environmental policy analyst at the Institute for European Environmental Policy, uh, which in short is also called IEP, um, which is an independent and not-for-profit research institute based in London and Brussels. I'm part of uh, IEP's Climate and Environmental Governance Programme. I'm based in London, and I undertake research and analysis for pan-European research projects for EU institutions, including the European Commission, and the European Parliament, uh, as well as member states and governments uh, and NGOs. Uh, as part of my work, uh, I focus on EU environmental and climate policy, and I work both on uh, climate mitigation and adaptation research projects, but, um, but recently I've been doing more and work uh, on the use of market-based environmental policy instruments, uh, and I'm also really interested in looking at how to make sure um, that the EU budget works for the environment. 
I have a science background and I uh, studied environmental policy at uh, Imperial College London. And on a personal level um, or personal context, uh, I am originally from Hungary, but I've been living in London for five years and I also spent a year in Brussels. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Andrea. Glad to have you here today. And Salem, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and how your work intersects with climate adaptation? Of course. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Salem Mafawarki, and I am the founder and program director for um, a company called Value Sustainability. It's specialized on consulting services in California and sustainability, climate change, and community engagement services mainly for the public sector clients. Uh, we provide wide range of services, starting from sustainable design for engineering projects. We develop matrices, um, indicators for sustainability, strategies, and also reporting. On the climate change side, which is very relevant to this um, podcast, would be our team does work from greenhouse gases inventory to developing climate action plans, um, climate risk assessment, and also adaptation planning. Uh, apart from my consulting job and my day job, per se, I also sit in two advisory councils here in Southern California. One of them is for the city of Irvine, which is in Orange County in Southern California, and another uh, for the Los Angeles Metropolitan Transportation Authority, also known as LA Metro. And we, uh, in our advisory role, we provide technical and uh, policy-related advices on environmental and sustainability issues. So as um, Andrea and Julia, I'm also an elite fellow for 2016, and I had a pleasure to attend both um, the European as well as the California Climate Adaptation Tours. On a personal note, um, um, I was born in Ethiopia. My parents are from Eritrea, both countries in Africa, um, and then lived in Chile for almost 10 years in South America. Then now I live in um, Southern California, which is in the US. So I am definitely a citizen of the world who is very passionate about building a resilient um, community and infrastructure. And I'm definitely grateful and very thankful for the opportunity to share my experiences and takeaways with you all. Sure. Well, we're grateful to have you here. I, I, just the intros alone, what a wealth of experiences, personal and professional, we have on the line. I'd love to just go through what we did on our five-day study tour, which discussed climate adaptation all around California, but really focused on the geography and actors in Southern California. Salem, could you talk us through the first few days? What were the key events and issues we explored? Sure, happy to summarize. So we started um, the tour on Monday morning. Um, after that, our first visit was to Southern California Edison in the city of Los Angeles, where Adam Smith, he is also a fellow ELIPER for this uh, year in 2016, um, who also runs their um, climate change program at Southern California Edison. So he was happy to share with us um, the challenge they're facing as a utility and also um, their programs, both in climate mitigation and adaptation. Um, so that was in the morning. And then after a few hours of drive uh, through LA traffic, for those you don't know, LA traffic might not be the, let's say the best, but it was really great. We get to have a chance to network and connect and talk uh, among us among us fellows. Uh, so our next stop was uh, to visit Orange County um, Water District, which is also known as OCS, OCWD. Um, it is a California special district that manages the groundwater basin 
uh, underneath um, the central and north um, Orange County. Um, the groundwater basin provides a water supply to 19 municipal water districts and special districts that serve more than 2.4 million Orange County residents. So this is in the northern part of Orange County. Um, we learned there how, they, how water is captured, treated, and also stored in the northern county. And then the last visit of the day, this is still on Monday, uh, was to visit the Los Angeles um, Clean Tech Incubator, also known as LASI, uh, where we learned about the clean technology and initiative programs here in Los Angeles area, met with a lot of startups that are developing solutions in water and energy. And we also had a great dinner and conversation with uh, young professionals in energy. So the second day on Tuesday, we started the day by visiting Alta Sea in Long Beach, um, followed by a visit to the Port of Long Beach. So the port staff gave presentations about Port of Long Beach operations, uh, climate action, what they're doing in terms of resiliency, energy projects, water quality efforts, and also community grant programs. That morning, we learned how both Port of Long Beach and Port of LA, so for those who don't know, they are next to each other. Um, operate, how do they operate, how do they generate revenue, and also their initiatives for efficiency and clean goods movement. So after lunch, this is on Tuesday, we visit the Los Angeles Metropolitan Transportation Agency, also known as LA Metro, where their environmental compliance and sustainability development team presented on um, Metro's climate action adaptation, sorry, climate change <laughs> adaptation efforts, um, including the resiliency indicator and framework they recently developed. This presentation was followed by Union Station study tour. Um, LA Metro's office is next to Union Station. It's pretty much on the same building. So we had a chance to learn about the history of Union Station, what Metro's current projects are at the moment, what they are doing to increase its current capacity and modernize the station. The day ended with another lovely dinner with Miss Steinbrenner from the... German consulate in Los Angeles. So that would be the summary from my end for the first two days. Thanks, Salam. I'm already swimming in the acronyms and feeling the energy. Uh, Andrea, could you could you wing us through the next three days? How did we spend the rest of the tour? Yeah, sure. So the rest of the tour was also pretty jam-packed. Um, so uh, first thing on Wednesday, we jumped into our small bus and we drove down south to Carlsbad, which is a um, city around, I would say, 150 kilometers away from Los Angeles. And first, um, we visited the Carlsbad desalination plant, uh, which I understand is the largest and uh, most technologically advanced seawater desalination plant in the U.S. Um, each day, the plant delivers around 200 million liters of fresh desalinated water to the San Diego County and serves around uh, 400,000 people. Um, so it, it is a really important um, uh, operation. Um, we basically uh, had a chance to go around within the plant and we had a guide who showed us the various steps of the desalination process. I won't go into details, but uh, I have to say I was pretty amazed uh, by the technique, uh, what they um, put in uh, in these plants. Um, 
And also in the end, we also got to taste the water, uh, which was exactly just like in any other tap waters. Um, while it was really exciting to see and, and visit a desalination plant, um, I was also really struck by the figures and facts and uh, on how expensive uh, it is to build a plant. So uh, I believe um, this plant costs around uh, $1 billion to be built. And also there's a lot of uh, byproduct being built up by the process. So there's a lot of salt produced during the process. And this just have to be discharged to the sea, of course, by being diluted uh, as the salt concentration is just too high to get to be used uh, to use it for anything. And uh, in addition to the uh, building costs, obviously operation is pretty expensive and it uses a lot of energy and therefore contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. So well, it was really interesting to see how a plant like this works on the ground. Um, after this, um, we had a meeting uh, with two experts who work on climate adaptation in Carlsbad. So we met with Laura Engel in, from San Diego Regional Climate Collaborative and Carl Steele, who's a city planner in Carlsbad. Um, so from Laura, we, we learned about this collaborative, which is a peer-to-peer -peer network that started in 2013. And the aim is to create a regional community of practice and and keep this as an open platform where uh, different actors and stakeholders can learn um, from each other. So we do have similar things, for instance, in, in Europe. Um, and I found it really interesting to see what are differences between these networks. Um, and from Carl, um, we heard about what the local authority is doing on climate adaptation in Carlsbad and especially how the city is planning to cope with sea level rise. Um, after this meeting, uh, we finished the day on the Cardiff Beach, where we met Julia's colleagues who showed us the climate adaptation project on the ground. So this was a project uh, where um, ecosystem-based approaches uh, were used. And um, it's called the Living Shores Project. And the aim is to transform a stretch of the beach uh, by creating dunes, which will be also planted with native species. Um, and the idea is that this would help to cope with sea level rise, but at the same time also bring in conservational um, benefits um, and we basically just walked around the beach and learned about um, the project process and what efforts are being put into uh, to make this project happen. Um, and here again, we were quite a lot of us were struck, but about the by the costs of this project um, because at least it costed around um, two million US dollars so far. So it is a quite an expensive uh, project. Um, on Thursday, uh, we started uh, our day at the Los Angeles River, uh, River. So the river actually flows through the city, but uh, it flows through a concrete channel on a fixed course, which was built after a series of devastating floods in the early 20th century. So some of you might have been familiar with scenes in, in various Hollywood movies where they're car chasing chasing each other on this concrete so it's, it's a pretty shocking view i have to say um but there's currently uh, ongoing projects uh, which aim to restore the reef, uh, river not just to better cope with flooding events but also to create a nice environment for people to enjoy the area and actually see the f the, f the river and enjoy walking around it um then we continued um our 
stay on Thursday with a meeting at the Los Angeles Sustainability Office, um, where we heard from officers working both at the LA County and the city of LA. Um, and I have to say, it took me some time to understand the various governance levels and responsibilities in and around LA. But um, luckily, this meeting gave us um, a clearer picture and... Um, we we learned about the different activities that the officers um, are working on in relation to not just climate adaptation, but sustainability in a broader sense. And finally, still on Thursday, <laughs> we finished our day by visiting Santa Monica. And there we went to the Santa Monica Urban Runoff Facility, which is also called Smurf. And we also had a short talk by a representative of the LA Waterkeepers, who are basically a not-for-profit watchdog organization keeping an eye on water resources in the region. After this, we had a really nice Mexican dinner um, in Santa Monica, where we actually met with um, some of the ILIP alumni. Um, and this is one of the really great thing about the ILIP network itself is that um, wherever you travel around the world, you can always find um, fellows or alumni uh, around. And uh, we actually managed to have a chat uh, with them there as well. So last day was Friday and uh, we had um, only a short day because some people actually had to catch their flights. So in the morning we visited um, a project called uh, Green Alleys and the initiative is basically to transform abandoned and malfunctioning alleys in the outskirts of the cities city Los Angeles um, where disadvantaged communities live and the aim is to transform these into green alleys which not only help um, to adapt to climate change um, but also serve the community so for instance um, just planting uh, uh, trees and plants around and um, installing permal surfaces uh, which could help to cope with heavy rainfalls and just making basically the environment nicer for people to enjoy the areas. And that was it. So we we had an amazing week. Um, it was it was really, really packed. Um, but we luckily had some time as well to to have uh, discussions on the bus while we were traveling. And I think we came up with some really great ideas and initiatives and, and it was uh, just a truly inspiring week. Excellent. Well, thank you ladies for that summary. I, it, it is hard to encompass all of that content into a couple sound snippets. I know for me, the mental image I carry of our week is um, when we got to walk out into the trapezoidal concrete channel of the LA River and you're standing in like, just less than an inch of water flowing by you, and you're thinking, I'm I'm in a river, I'm standing in the middle of the city, just what a heavily managed landscape, but then meeting everyone who's thinking so proactively about future management of this landscape and the communities adjacent to the river, really, really powerful. So shifting from our tour agenda to more of your own personal experience and observations and the, those takeaways that you carry with you, I'd like to ask a couple more specific questions of each of you. Salem, to start as a, a Southern California local, what further insights did you gain about the challenges and successes that Los Angeles organizations are facing as they coordinate and cooperate on climate adaptation responses? Sure. So for me, um, most of the agencies and cities we were lucky enough to visit uh, were either my clients, because I'm in the consulting world, 
or our potential clients. So because I'm more also on a project level, not on a policy level per se, um, it gave me a great opportunity to visit climate adaptation projects and initiatives. Um, starting from the initial project planning and design phase to financing, to project development, and even how they get um, stakeholders, whether they're internal or external stakeholders involved. So some of the takeaways, um, I had their way too many of them, but I summarized some of them. So um, the first one I would say is our visit to LA Metro shade a light on some of the things I wouldn't be able to know as a consultant. For example, how Metro finances its climate um, change adaptation efforts. I knew that LA Metro is doing or was doing a lot of great work in terms of climate change. Uh, so at our tour, I learned that um, Metro is constantly looking for alternative and innovative way of generating revenue um, because they might not have a budget set aside only for climate adaptation. So they tap into some funds that is state or federal grants. I'm sure Julie would be able to add more a little bit later. Um, youth cap and trade money. Um, public-private partnership, also known as PPP or P3, depending where you work, and other sources uh, to pay for non-budgeted expenses related to climate adaptation. So I know that for government and public agencies here in Southern California that I work with, identifying a funding source for climate adaptation specifically is one of their key challenges. So I was very happy to to see how Metro is doing it, and potentially I can advise my clients on next projects on how and where they can tap to those funds uh, to push the agenda forward. So another uh, point I would say, uh, another thing I learned was that here in California, we have way too many climate um, data sources and tools that could be a bit conflicting at times. So let me explain. For example, for the Port of Long Beach, um, that we visited, they used the IPCC to develop their climate change adaptation and coastal resiliency plan. It's a long name. Um, so they used that one using IPCC, but the city of Carlsbad, which is an hour or almost two hours away from where um, Port of Long Beach is, used COSMOS, um, coastal storm modeling system to develop their sea level rise vulnerability assessment. Even though it is great to have tools and data, sometimes when you're especially on a project level, different agencies and cities use different tools as they choose just what works for them, which makes it very hard sometimes to do benchmarking or compare findings, and especially in a regional level or um, as a state in California. So that was another insight that I never saw as a consultant before um, and saw it at the tour. So other few points I would say, um, the another one would be LA Metro, the Port of Long Beach and Southern California Edison are all working in their own bubble per se, meaning in their own world, um, to deal with this complex challenge of climate adaptation planning and project implementation. Um, since the challenge itself is cross-sectoral, that means here we have mobility, uh, goods movement, and energy are all connected. And as we all know, energy sector and transportation combined are the biggest sources of the greenhouse gas emission. Um, I learned that the, the cities and agencies we visited uh, want to collaborate with each other um, because they they can learn from each other, they can share their experiences and also leverage their knowledge and also resources. 
Um, another one, let's see. Through the tour, I also realized that uh, it only takes one leader or a champion champion sorry um with the with the right team and uh, backing them up uh, to push the agenda which is in this case climate change within an agency or city so i also learned the importance of leadership when it comes to climate change adaptation efforts um most of the cities we visited um including places we visited, like, for example, the LA Incubator, the Port of Long Beach, LA Metro, they all had one at least or two great leaders that are also excellent communicators. Um, sometimes as a, as a professional in this field, uh, you get caught up sometimes only on the technical knowledge required to do climate action and climate adaptation work, um, but you forget that you also equally need the, those soft skills, for example, open communication, inclusion, addressing equity issues, those things that sometimes we uh, forget, but that are very important, especially when you want to get uh, people to support you and move the agenda within an organization or within a community. I would say those were my takeaways. I think that also provides a good transition to the question I wanted to ask Andrea, which is looking toward the policy sphere. Given your experience working heavily in the EU environmental policy realm, what differences did you observe in the policymaking and governance structures that drive climate adaptation in California and perhaps even in the U.S.? Sure. Thanks, Julia, for the question. Um, so in contrast to Salam. I work heavily at the policy level and in particular on EU environmental policy. And so I was really interested to see and experience on the ground what are the main differences between the EU and the US in terms of environmental and climate governance. And although we visited quite a lot of projects on the ground and initiatives, we did get um, a snapshot of what's happening at the policy level. And I think I, I did get... Um, a good experience of that as well. Um, so obviously, I I thought that there will be differences, but what I found that um, there is actually a difference in governance within political systems, but also within the environmental context. So with regards to the first one, to political systems, um, obviously the first issue what really struck me was how much climate change is politicized in the US. And of course, this was something I was expecting. Um, but uh, experiencing it on the ground and seeing it coming through of the different projects initiatives, it was obviously something different. And even in California, which it is a truly a front runner state in environmental actions, this was something that was really felt throughout all the discussions. Um, and of course, uh, without going into details um, with the current presidents, this is this is not something that we can uh, expect to get. But um, what I thought was that the, with the current administration having not only just a practical impact on the room for maneuver for states to implement climate actions, so obviously um, cutting funds uh, and federal sources from climate action is something that has huge implications, but there's a wider, wider negative um, impact, which is that given that there's no climate leadership at the very high level, there is no driving force which which could uh, push through all the states and uh, different actions. Um, and this is something that I, 
where I would say that Europe is, is way ahead and, and we're in a much better position. And as Salam just mentioned, um, having having leaders and champions within different organizations is really important. But having a leader at the very high level is, is something that that's crucial, I would say. So that, that was my first first observation, I would say. Um the second point is about the overall governance and the political structure. And of course, um, there are some similarities uh, between the two countries. Uh, in some ways, we can even say that the EU's member states can be regarded as US states. But, um, but just having... Um, Within the EU, the 28 member states and the directly elected European Parliament, the Council of the European Union, the European Commission gives a, a very different background to the whole governance system. And having that sort of um, triangle of the European institutions just gives a, a very strong driving force um, for environmental policymaking. And I felt in California that climate policy is, is um, coming from much less top-down approach and that um, the overarching legislation is gu and guidance is, is stronger in, in the EU. And so, for instance, when we had our meeting um, at the Long Beach uh, Port Authority, uh, the need for a more structured top-down approach was was confirmed, um, Where uh, because the port is implementing a very wide range of climate mitigation and adaptation actions, and and they are really trying to do a lot to improve um, the port and their impact on the environment and climate. But because there is no such um, top-down approach and provide and something that provides a, a, a national level guidance for all the ports, there is no no playing field um, on this aspect in the port. And that that's something that if if that lacks, that can obviously lead to loopholes for other ports and, and there just won't be similar actions coming from all ports. Um, on the other hand, and this already points to my second point on the environmental context, um, the EU has a very robust overarching legislative framework and it has a lot of strategies. And obviously we get with regards to mitigation, we have the EU 2020 and the 2030 climate energy targets. But for adaptation, the EU also has an overarching EU adaptation strategy, which pushes um, member states to adopt national adaptation plans and it creates an evaluation framework as well. So, so there is quite a lot happening and coming from from the European uh, level, uh, from a, from the top down level, and obviously, in addition to the climate policies, there is also a very wide range of policies that are um, in uh, in place for for the environment, which we also call as the EU environmental acquis, and this provides a really strong framework for environmental protection here in the EU. And I really felt that this this is something that's missing in the U.S. And um, for instance, when we we had our meeting with the LA um, River Project um, representatives, when we walked around the river and the concrete blocks, um, they, for instance, said that there is no unified jurisdiction for the river, and and in some cases they were just stuck and couldn't really really do anything. Um, on the ground because of this problem and for instance in comparison it's it's so much easier in the EU because we we have the water framework directive and this provides an overarching framework for the EU to achieve good environmental status of all water bodies and and it establishes a very strong monitoring and reporting system and therefore creates accountability and member states 
really need to comply with various requirements. Um, so, so that was a, a very big difference um, to me. Um, and finally, maybe just two very quick remarks. Um, so as part of my job, I work a lot on what we call uh, climate mainstreaming. And this is basically essentially the need to integrate climate considerations into all sectors and sectoral fronts within the EU. And it is, I do believe it's one of the cornerstones of EU climate policymaking. And this has a really important role and it's sort of institutionalized of how the EU budget allocated and spent. For instance, we have an overarching target that 20% of total EU budget needs to be spent on climate actions in the current uh, programming period, which runs from 2014 to 2020. And, and um, this is something that I felt that... Um, was missing in the US and obviously Europe still needs to do more and and um, with the Paris Agreement being signed the context and the objectives need to be changed but um, but um, I felt that efforts on this uh, particular aspects are not the same in the US at least um, from coming from the higher levels and this is probably something that points to my last observation which is about the role of local and regional authorities and non-state actors um, and so the meetings we had um, in California confirmed that that these actors have really important role in the US and and uh, and that the bottom-up approach is I would say has a, a, a larger emphasis on actions, uh, especially on climate change adaptation in the U.S. Great. Thank you, Andrea. Um, see, we're nearing the end of our episode today, but I feel it would be an omission to not ask this final question I want to get to, and I'd ask you each to just give your core gut response to it. Uh, in our time, we spent a lot of our time in the L.A. region, and I'm curious what the study tour revealed to you or made you consider about the role of environmental justice and equity issues in developing and implementing adaptation efforts? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe for me, for a little bit of uh, background per se, in, in our consulting world, we don't use the word um, environmental justice a lot. We say um, disadvantaged communities. So I'm probably going to talk about what I know and what I have seen in terms of disadvantaged communities. My big takeaway here is um, I would say the agency studies we visited have a big importance and focus on disadvantaged communities and that there is funding there. Since funding is one of the challenges for them, it's a good thing where they can um, have two things done, which is help the communities, the disadvantaged communities that are the most vulnerable, and at the same time have the funding source they need to move their climate action or climate change adaptation programs. I'm going to actually pause and insert myself um, okay. in that I love what you said, Salem, and taking off my podcast host hat and putting mm -hmm. on my state agency fund management hat. Um, there, there really is simultaneously this, this recognition of the disproportionate impacts that often fall on our disadvantaged communities and also thinking about the, the really daunting amount of investment that is needed to provide climate adaptation responses. And I think about for some of our listeners who may not know the California context, a, a really 
positive motion and one that plays out in my daily life is Senate Bill 535, which was authored by the California Senate pro tem Kevin DeLeon, which directs at least a quarter of the greenhouse gas reduction funds, so a major funding pool in California, at least a quarter of that needs to go to projects that provide benefits to disadvantaged communities. And at least 10% of those funds have to go specifically into projects that are located within a disadvantaged community. So seeing this in my own work, you know, the Coastal Conservancy just wrapped up a urban greening round, Los Angeles urban greening round, over $11 million invested in local communities on the ground projects. I think we're, I guess we're starting to see this shift where I think there's increased recognition of environmental justice issues, of addressing equity, and, and it all hinges on those multiple benefits. You know, how for a dollar do you spend, do you ensure that you're both seeing the ecological shift that's desired, the social uplift, the ability to sustain the improvement in the project into the future. And I think that's that's a really hopeful front. And now, Andre, I'll turn it over to you to close it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe I'll try to reflect on both of your thoughts. So, yeah, I fully agree um, with Salem that all the meetings, uh, almost all the meetings and all the projects uh, we saw, um, the people we met um, in California, they did consider this end but disadvantaged communities and it was it, it was an important in, uh, aspect in all of the project even we when we visited the green alley project that was purely just about disadvantaged communities so it is definitely something that is really in the corner store of of environmental and climate actions within california and i would even say that um i felt that this is this is maybe something that is more promoted or it's more in the front front um, in environmental decisions in, in California or maybe even the whole US compared to the EU. And I, I thought that maybe just to reflect on, on your point, Julia, uh, and many thanks for bringing up uh, co-benefits or multiple benefits, um, because I think obviously um, these projects have uh, social benefits, but they also bring in um, uh, climate benefits. But if we can combine it together with broader environmental benefits as well, that is just the perfect combination. So maybe just to wrap up the whole thing would be a thought that that obviously the more more benefits uh, climate adaptations actions can deliver, and the pro and the way these projects could be um, proposed that we highlight these these multiple benefits obviously the easier it would be to convince the decision makers and the policy makers to actually implement them and we should just stick to these broader broader picture and deal with these benefits at the same time i don't think i can improve on that closing so with that i'd like to say thank you so much salam and andrea for joining us today thank you for having us thank you thank you so in closing the episode, for our listeners, I'd again like to thank Andrea Elis and Salem Efawerki for taking the time out of their busy schedules to speak with us. Thanks as well to Nick Evans for helping to produce today's show. Musical credits are also with him. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, do me a favor and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us by simply searching eLeap Network. We'll be having more great episodes coming up soon. And with that, thanks for listening and take care.